Welcome to the Jimmy Neville Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Pada, a medical physician and entrepreneur with an interest in the link between diabetes, obesity, and addiction. In this podcast, prepare to learn why breakfast is not the best meal of the day, how medical professionals approach getting someone off of drugs, why rats choose sugar over cocaine, and how Alzheimer's is diabetes of the brain. This is a thought-provoking conversation that I really enjoyed. Let's get right into it. All right, Dr. Potter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so... I met you online and asked if you'd be a guest. You said you would. So over the last few days, I've been doing some some digging around, watched a few podcasts. I watched, watched one called Thought Hustle that you were in, and then another one called Phantom Facts that you were in, just to kind of get an idea of who I was talking to. And it seems like, like I just said a minute ago before we press record, that you have a very interesting life. There's a lot of topics that you're interested in and talk about and very knowledgeable about. But just some of the things I'd like to talk about is kind of uh, the first thing is like building a life. Another one would be like health and then addiction and recovery. So as far as building a life goes, do you want to tell everyone a little about your early life in India and how you got to the United States? Yeah, so I, um, I was born in India and I was born about 17 years after partition. Um, partition is when India separated from Pakistan after the British left. So the British, when they left, they looted everything in India, took it with them, and then placed an artificial border in the middle, in, in the side of India, um, and basically said, said, have at it. So there was a tremendous amount of religious strife. Um, I'm Sikh, and the Sikhs live on the border between where the majority of the Muslims live and the majority of the Hindus live, and, and we've been that buffer zone. Well, they drew the border right there. And unfortunately, what that did was it left half of the Sikh population on one side of the border, half the Sikh population on the other side of the border, and there was a tremendous amount of communal strife. The Hindus wanted to get the Muslims, the Muslims wanted to get the Hindus, and in between, we were caught. Um, Sikhs have historically been uh, the protectors of the Hindus because they're relatively more peaceful. Um, And so that gives you the background of this tumultuous period. So here I am growing up, and... India is separated. We, we've got uh, food shortages. We've got farming shortages. Uh, India is trying to experiment with, cap- with communism. Uh, the Russians are coming in. Um, and at the same time, my family's political. And both sides, both the federal government in India and the government in Pakistan, um, want us eliminated. They, they don't want us around. So they both sides issue edicts against us. And so as a little kid, I grew up in, in an area where I had to be worried that I was going to get poisoned or killed or shot. And it's pretty serious because I, you know, we, we would hear air raid sirens like every other night. Um, we would get bombed. We would get, I would, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times they gave me um, emetics to throw up because they thought I'd been poisoned. Eventually they got tired of making me throw up all the time and sent me to a boarding camp and made me made me live there and so that people didn't know who I was. So that's the that's the origin story. So I, I grew up in an area that was very chaotic, high stress, um, high crisis opportunity, high crisis issues, um, but also with, ver- with limited parental supervision. Um, and I didn't even see my parents for a good five or six years because I was living in a boarding school. And what I, I mean, like when I was like three years old. Um, and I had a guard dog, a Belgian Malinois, that I couldn't quite understand how this dog spoke fluent German, and 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 uh, and she was she was fluent in German, but she couldn't speak a lick of Punjabi or, or Hindi. So I ended up learning German to be able to play with her, uh, and she was a total guard dog. I also had a bodyguard, and um, and I caused a lot of mischief. Um, it turned out I had bad ADHD, so and so I I managed. Um, we eventually moved to the States when I was probably like nine, 10. Um, and I grew up in the urban core of St. Louis. The one difference was 
well, the big difference was now I was in an area that was almost all black. Uh, it was urban core. I was going to a practically all black school. Um, and I was the only kid that wasn't black. There were, I think there was one white kid. Um, and I was obviously the one that didn't speak English either. And I wore a turban. Um, and I got beat up a lot. <laughs> so, so just the nature of, of coming from one place to the other. But what I liked about the States uh, was that it wasn't communist and there wasn't this tremendous fear and I could eat ice cream safely and not be forced to throw things up. So um, I kind of embedded into that culture, but I always loved capitalism. I, I love the concept of how do things work? How does money work? How do, how do businesses work? So I was always curious, like, how is it that someone can have a business and make money and, and they can buy things? And it's just a curiosity that was just pervasive for me. Um, so I, I, I learned to hustle. And that's, you know, and, and, and from there, the rest kind of progressed. That was the early part of, of, of growing up. Yeah, when you talk about capitalism and how, how you love it, all the aspects of it, it is, it, it caters very well to, to someone who's, um, who's wanting to develop themselves better because you, you grow by doing the next hard thing. And I think that that lines up pretty well with, with capitalism. So I guess where you got in your story was, was to about what age, age 13. Yeah. But well, about nine to about 11. That's also where I discovered a lot of life lessons about, um, about human beings. You know, I already learned that you could be poisoned and killed. I already knew that situations outside of your control could take care of, could basically annihilate you. And, and you had to, you had to be aware and hyper aware of these situations. Um, I also learned that you could fake your way into pretending like you didn't speak English so that you could cause more mischief as a little one. Um, but I also learned that, you know, I could create my own business. I could sell greeting cards door to door. And what I learned was you got to get the money first because when you customize the greeting card for somebody and you come back three months to collect the money later, um, they may not want the greeting card. So, I mean, I learned some early business skills that way. So you think um, and that I was... excelled in school. Uh, good. You think that was boredom that got you into that, or, or just like an interest in entrepreneurship? It is the entrepreneurial interest um, because I, I, my mother, the first thing she, she did was she made sure that I knew how to read. As soon as you know, and I had learned that in boarding school anyway, but she needed to make sure that I could read English very efficiently. I grew up learning Russian first because India was, we were going to become communists as a country. And so the Russians were there. I was next to the Russian embassy in Chandigarh. Um, and I went to the Russian uh, library. And so I learned Russian. And I didn't learn English till later, till I came to the States. And so my mother made sure that I learned English and learned it well. And that was through reading. And so there was constantly, because I was new to this country, I had never seen television um, until I got here. I, I had never seen an American movie. And so I had to quickly adapt. Um, and so I was doing, and it, because I was a little bit older uh, learning English, I could actually understand what I was being taught. It wasn't just like, oh, you, you grew up learning English and you assume that you know the verbs, you know the adverbs, and you know how things connect. I actually learned the rules of the language and the conjunctions and where to use apostrophes and where to use commas and, and quotations. And so I actually learned through that process. Uh, and, you know, and because I could compare it to something else, which was Russian, and I could compare it to something else, which was, Hin which was Hindi and Punjabi, um, it, it provided a deeper insight um, into understanding the construct of language. And so I... I consciously thought about it. And both my parents are, are in science. You know, my mother's a mathematician. My father's a physicist. And so God forbid I get a, a B on a class that had something to do with math or science, I was in trouble. And they were already making sure that I spoke English perfectly. Um, and so I had to learn how to navigate um, the correct accent for the U.S. and still be able to speak my home, home country language of Punjabi or Hindi. 
And so it, w- it was an interesting time. So by the time that I ended up about 11, um, I'd gotten through the concept of English. I realized I wasn't terribly sports inclined, um, and but I loved science. And so I, I was working on that and I, I, I wanted to make money. I wanted to like have the things that other kids had. And we were immigrants. We were living in the urban core. And so, you know, both my parents didn't make much money. Um, and so I had to hustle on my own to get something if I wanted it. Eventually, we moved out to the county and I went to school in the in the in basically an all white school almost. Uh, it was, I think, three percent minority or something. Um, and here I was. I was the only kid with a brown kid with a turban in an all white school now. And I had to learn all of their social mores and all of their uh, entanglements. And so now what I realized through the process was that being an outsider was not all that bad because you could then study your subjects and you could say, oh, I wonder what that's about. And so it gave you a different perspective of hum- human beings. And I think that that's one of the greatest things I ever learned, which is the ability to pull back and surveil the situation uh, in a better way. And that's what I'd learned when I was little too, is you know, don't, don't go run into something because before you know it, um, it may explode. And don't kick something that you don't know what it is because it might be an IED. Um, and be careful of the nice people that are trying to offer you food because they might be trying to poison you. And that sound of whistling that's coming towards you might just be a, a, an RPG. Um, and you don't know it till it hits. So, I mean, you know, it's that it's that hyper aware situation um, that gave me a lot of insight. So I got through high school or got into high school. And by then I had scaled up from doing door to door sales, which is a great way to learn English, actually, and a great way to learn people. Um, And I was starting to now uh, cut people's grass and I was fixing lawnmowers. And I went from that to, you know, hey, can you build a shed for me or my roof is leaking. Can you get up there and patch it? To now hiring three or four people to, to work for me while I went to high school. And so now I learned the concept of labor and how to, how to, how to put people in the right position. And most of the people that I was working with that I had hired were much older than me because I couldn't even drive yet. And they would have to drop me off at high school. And then they would call me at the high school phone in the cafeteria and I would answer and tell them the answer that, that they needed to ask or whatever. And, and so I realized that I could leverage um, labor and learned how to be cooperative with people and, um, and educate at the same time. And then I was into computers, love technology, and still do. Um, but I, but I, I wanted to do something in the biology area. So I went to medical school and uh, went, went into trauma surgery at first, kind of got a little bored, uh, went into anesthesia, <clears throat> then I went into pediatric anesthesia, loved it. Uh, but eventually I had kids and I was now in my mid, mid-20s, almost 30, and um, realized that having children the same age as the little kids that were in my hands that I was doing heart, liver, lung transplant work with or liver cancer or pain, and when one of them died, um, it just, it, it breaks your heart. So eventually I backed away from that. Meanwhile, I had gotten my MBA in finance um, because I was curious about finances all the time. And so I ended up getting a degree in international finance and um, loved that too. Uh, worked with Jack Welsh and GE Capital um, and eventually went into interventional pain. And that's kind of what brings us together here. Because I went into interventional pain because I, I knew how to do fine point needle injections. I need, I was really good with my hands. I love thinking about things. I love neurophysiology. And I thought, well, I'm burned out of doing pediatric anesthesia. Maybe I'll do something else. So I went into doing procedures in adults and kids. And as I was looking at it, I realized that about 40% of people had markings that you would say, hey, this person could be an, could have an addiction. And what's causing this addiction? And at the same time, I started looking at him and going, you know, I don't understand. Why is it that the patient that I'm dealing with, they don't have much money, but they're really overweight. And I thought it took money to buy food 
And so how could it be that they're massively overweight, but they don't have that much money and they have pain and they're overweight and they might be an addict too. They might have an addiction. And so that kind of posited questions and bubbled through my head. And after spending years trying to tear that apart and break it and look at it and upside down it, um, I came to some conclusions. And the real issue is that um, there's a common nexus that connects pain, addiction, obesity, diabetes. There's one common nexus. And we just don't recognize it most of the time. And that common nexus is severe metabolic inflammation. Now, I mean, certainly, you're not going to have obesity if you, if you have metabolic inflammation and you're starving, starving to death in East Asia. You're probably not going to have addiction if you have metabolic inflammation and you have zero access to any medicant. What it, how would you describe metabolic inflammation? Metabolic inflammation is the systemic effect that occurs because of our modern lifestyle. That's part component of it. Um, what's happened is that it used to be 70 to 80% of the US population was metabolically healthy. And that was in the 1920s to 1940s. And that was pretty good all the way up until about 1971. I don't know what happened in 1971, but there's a website that is 1971 WTF. Um, that's also when we went off the gold standard with Nixon. Um, and that's also when we changed the, um, the dietary guidelines for the Americans. Um, and around 1971, we went to um, low-fat diets. We recommended that people consume vegetable oil. And we, uh, we recommended that you could eat all the sugar you wanted. And it wouldn't harm you because a calorie is a calorie. And unfortunately, none of that was true. And what it did do is it led to an epidemic of severe diabetes, obesity, and then a progression of people into addiction. And so that's that's what I was starting to break apart. Um, so it was a, it was a it was a sea change that happened in a relatively short time period, and it wasn't occurring just in the United States. It was occurring in other populations that had similarly adapted Western lifestyles. So. Maybe this was an epidemic of some kind, but here's the problem. It was also occurring in the animal model that was eating the American food. It was occurring in rats that were, very, that were eating the same food that, they, that, that we were. It was, it was occurring in rats that were eating French fries that had vegetable oil and carbohydrates and processed refined sugars. So it, it's not isolated to just the human population. It apparently occurs in all animals that are the mammalian that, that have this issue. So now it allowed me to narrow my focus down to, well, what is it that we're getting that we don't recognize? So underlying this is this concept of, of metabolic inflammation that's related to dietary intake, which is processed, refined, or ultra-processed refined foods that are driven by vegetable oil and carbohydrates but there's a whole host of other factors um and so once i started digging into that i was able to come up with pathways to help my patients um get better and over time get a lot better uh, and so that that that's where i'm at now yeah i've heard a lot on social media about seed oils and now you're talking about vegetable oils i don't i don't really know that that is uh, seed oil. Vegetable oil is seed oil. It's the same thing. Yeah, there are, yeah, there are no vegetables in vegetable oil. They, that's just a name that they gave it so that it sounded good. So let me give you the history of, of vegetable oil or seed oil or industrial seed oil. Um, it started in the 1800s, late 1700s, and we were looking for a source of oil that we could use um, for lighting purposes. We needed oil to put a wick in so we could light things up so because we didn't have electricity. And so in the United States, <coughs> um, we were using cheap oil. Um, and we had a surplus of cotton. And so the cotton seed that we couldn't really use to make clo clothing out of, we could compress it and, and heat it and extract the oil from it. And so we were using that for a while. And we, we had a great reason to have it. But then the cotton, cotton gin, gin came along 
And we started using a lot more of this cotton than before. And we became the major exporter of cotton for the rest of the world because we had mechanized cotton gins. But that also meant that we had tons and tons and tons of these seeds. And the thing was that we couldn't use them all. And so people were throwing them in the rivers and they were trying to start to feed them to animals. But the problem was the animals were getting sick. And the U.S. government said, hey, you can't give this cotton seed and this cotton seed oil, this vegetable oil, this industrial seed oil, to animals because it'll make them sick. It's, a, it's an environmental toxin and it, it, it'll kill them. And we saw that. What it did was it, it made them really, really fat, made them get really, really diabetic, and it made them die early from heart disease. And it made their meat not taste good and it made them sick. Um, and so it quickly took a population of pigs that was pretty much healthy and made them a population of extremely diabetic fat pigs that didn't do very well. So that, that's kind of what happened. Um, then we started to harvest whale blubber. And as soon as we started to harvest a lot of whale blubber, we said, hey, this whale blubber is a better heating, better oil than this cotton. And so we stopped using the cotton oil. But now we had all this production capacity for cotton oil and we weren't using it. So during World War II, some brilliant folks decided, you know what, we can steal some of these patents or buy these patents for taking um, hydrogen and adding it to an oil and making a, a bond to it. And what it does is it takes a liquid oil and makes it into a solid. This is the beginning of Crisco. And if you market this right to the American housewife and tell her that the Crisco is better than lard and give her a cookbook that's associated with it and make it look clean and beautiful, she's going to buy it. And so instantaneously, we started converting away from natural food like lard and butter and, and things like that and started using Crisco. And it was okay because it, we weren't using that much of it. Uh, but eventually, by 1971, we had canola coming out of Canada. And we really started jump starting that. And then the American Heart Association took the position through Ansel Keys that vegetable oil was healthier than lard. The vegetable oil was healthier than butter. They based that off of flawed studies and basically they got paid a ton of money to say that. Um, and those that, that documentation's out there. I mean, they, everybody knows that they were paid off and the American Heart Association initially got a lot of its funding from, from, these, um, from these companies that were promoting vegetable oil. Um, and so, that was the initiation of kind of the the dramatic rise in inflammation in the United States. So that, that that's one component. The other component. Um, so we use we went from about you know twenty to forty percent of people being sick to now about only twenty to thirty percent of the people being healthy. Then over the last ten to twelve years, we went down to only about thirteen percent of the U.S. population being healthy metabolically. And in the last year and a half, now it's down to 7% of the U.S. population being healthy. And that means that 87 or 83% of the U.S. population is at high risk for heart disease, high risk for stroke, um, you know, high risk for all of the things associated with neuroinflammation and metabolic inflammation, which is Alzheimer's, um, cognitive decline, cognitive impairment. Um, they're predisposed to addiction. Um, and then if you start digging into some of the things that, that are associated with vegetable oils and how they're manufactured, um, you start to realize that there are some endocrine disruptors that are occurring. And so what endocrine disruptors do once they get into your, into your population is they start to make girls, fetal girls, more masculine, and they start to make fetal boys more feminine. And there's something called the anogenital uh, distance. It's, it's the taint. It's the distance between the anus and the, and the bottom of the testis. Um, and that distance is starting to get smaller and smaller and smaller for boys, which means that they're getting more and more feminized. Now, you would think, well, Dr. Pata, that's kind of stupid. I'm not going to, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the same thing is happening to other apex predators. See, we're apex predators. We eat the things in our environment. Well, there's another apex predator. It's called a polar bear. And it itself is having the same problem because it's eating the endocrine disruptors that it's accumulating through, the, through all the other animals that it's eaten before who have eaten the other animals before them. And so it's in the middle of nowhere 
and it's getting these endocrine disruptors and their polar bear testicles are getting smaller. Polar bears are starting to lose their fertility rate. Um, there's a critical cutoff in fertility rate in, in human beings. Um, we used to have about 90 million sperm per milliliter. And the cutoff is when you get below 40 million, you can't sustain a population. And it takes about 2.1, one woman on average should have 2.1 babies in order to maintain a population that's relatively healthy for population stability, not growth, but stability. We drop below that and we're like less than 1.1, 1 1.4. And our sperm rates went from 90 million per milliliter down to 46 million per milliliter. Once we get below 40 million, we can't even sustain this 1.4 population. Um, and so we've been in net negative decline in the U.S. for population um, to the point where we can't, but for Im immigration, illegal or legal, I don't care how you put it, it's because of the immigration that we still have enough population that we still have cities. Um, China is in far worse shape than we are um, because they don't have a lot, a lot of net in migration and they went to that one child policy and now they don't know what to do. China is going to have an utter collapse because it's uh, most of its population is older and they don't have enough people that are young that are coming up to support the older people. Uh, we still have a, a large younger population but only through immigration. Um, and so you know, Japan's already about 10 years ahead of China. They're, they're having a real problem. I mean, they've got entire cities. Uh, they've got entire towns that don't have any population. Italy has something similar. That's why you can get a house for a dollar in Italy. So the, the core problem here is the amount of carbohydrates and vegetable oils that are being consumed. And that's trickling into all these other areas and causing all these other problems. It's triggering into all those other areas. Yeah, the, the reason why we did this, um, the perspective, is that what we've got is we've got processed, processed food. Um, there's, there's two things that are going on here. The reason why we have processed, subsidized food is that we had the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma way, way long ago. And the issue was that we were facing situations where the, the U.S. might get into a war. And when people would go to enlist, about a third of the people couldn't enlist because they had something called sarcopenic wasting. They didn't have enough muscle mass to lift anything, and we didn't have enough able-bodied human beings in the United States because everybody was starving to death. And so we had this malnutrition. And so the federal government said, hey, we got to get rid of this malnutrition, otherwise the country may not survive if we get invaded because everybody's malnourished. So they started to create subsidies for food. And they created tons and tons of subsidies and they shipped food from the northeast of the United States to the southwest. And they did that in order to uh, maintain integrity of the population so that um, people wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't die of starvation and we could have a, a robust armed forces. Well, we have the exact opposite thing now. So now when people go join the armed forces, we have a different problem. The problem now we have is they join and they can't do a pull up. Um, the number one reason for people coming home from Desert Storm is diseases of obesity. They didn't get blown up from an IED. They got repatriated to the United States because of diabetes, amputation from diabetes, diabetes out of control, exogenous obesity, and all of the other things associated with poor metabolism. So that's how we ended up initially starting processed food. Now, the thing is that these processed food companies get subsidized and they grow things like wheat and corn and the majority of corn produced in the United States is subsidized corn. Um, now if you break corn apart and you try to separate all of its parts after you've got it, you can take some of it and certainly use it to make alcohol. But there's way more corn being produced than you can consume for alcohol. So then you're left with all this other stuff that you got to do with. So some of it you turn into corn oil, and so you make a industrial corn oil, and which is a seed oil, um, and you start manufacturing that, and you use chemical refining methods, just like you would uh, if you pulled oil out of the ground. You, you would clean it up and 
stabilize it and chlorinate it and clean it and, and then use it. So it's, it's, a, it's a seed oil. It's a type of seed oil. Then you've still got all of this stuff with carbohydrate left, though. And so maybe you'll make some high fructose corn syrup out of it. You know, it's interesting. High fructose corn syrup is not like regular table sugar. So table sugar is one molecule of glucose and one molecule of fructose bound together. It makes a disaccharide. And so that's what, that's what table sugar is. Um, glucose is what we usually think of as sugar, but table sugar is actually, sucrose is actually glucose plus fructose. High fructose corn syrup should be 55% fructose, 45% glucose. But that's not what it's at when you look at your sugar-sweetened beverages. If you look at your sodas, they spend extra money further refining it, making it 60 to 65% fructose. And you really have to ask yourself, why would a company spend money extra? Because they're already getting a subsidy. And now are they, why are they spending extra money to make more fructose than you would normally expect. What are they doing to make this further refined? That takes a little bit of effort. Well, the reason why is that fructose acts in your brain differently than does glucose. Glucose activates the serotonin system more and fructose activates the dopaminergic system more. And so fructose in your brain level is far more addictive. And so that's why when you start drinking sodas, you don't drink one, you end up drinking one every hour or two. And in fact, most kids that drink soda start thinking about soda every 15 to 20 minutes when they run out of soda. And that's why we have these jumbo sodas because people self-dose themselves with you know, sips of soda. And every time you do that, that sugar hits your tongue, but it's the fructose going to your brain that makes you wanna repeat the action again. Uh, and unfortunately, what that does is it causes you to accumulate fat because your insulin goes up. Um, insulin is a fat storage hormone. That's how it works. Um, insulin takes sugar out of your bloodstream, takes glucose out of your bloodstream, and stores it as fat. And if you're constantly trickling in something sweet, your pancreas is constantly producing insulin. Uh, and that's why, for example, if you have somebody who gets uh, diet soda, and they're drinking diet soda and their tongue gets sweet, they're still producing insulin. Mm. And so they're not getting sugar in their bloodstream, but what sugar they have is now being pulled from their bloodstream and turned into fat in their liver. That's why people that eat, drink artificial soda are at the same or even possibly higher risk of diabetes uh, than people that get regular, regular sugar. So would you say that- I know it's a circuitous explanation, but- um, I was just gonna ask, would you say that the way the brain becomes addicted to sugar is the same way that it becomes addicted to other drugs like cocaine or opiates, but just in a, it's in similar. a lower way. It's similar. Uh, I, you know, they, they did a study on rats. And so there's actually three interesting rat studies that you, you should think about because I think they're relevant. The first study that we did on rats on addiction is we took a rat, we put it in a glass cage on one side, we gave the rat the opportunity to have cocaine water. On the other side, we gave the opportunity to have water water. We dropped the rat in. The rat tasted both and said, hey, I'm going to drink this cocaine. And it kept drinking the cocaine till it died. And the conclusion was rats like to overdose on cocaine. And they will, given the opportunity, they will overdose and die. That was the conclusion. And so that was the, if the rat is exposed to cocaine theory, then the rat will naturally overdose and die. And so that posited an interesting question. So Nixon, in, during, as the Vietnam War is wrapping up, his advisors tell him, look, about 20 to 25% of the people that are, that are out there that are in Vietnam, they're using daily heroin. It could be as high as 40%, but we think it's 20 to 25%. And you know, if, the, if we bring these people back, there can be zombies walking in the street. That was a big fear. 25% of the, of the GIs coming back are gonna be using heroin. This is gonna be terrible. You're gonna have people like committing criminal acts. They're gonna be overdosing. They're gonna maraud and, and, and these people are trained with weapons. What are we gonna do? Well, they went ahead and brought them back. And you would have expected 20, 25% of them were addicted to heroin. 
But lo and behold, only 5% of them used heroin in the United States, which is very similar to the inherent use of, of, of heroin. And that posited the second rat study. Um, why is it that the rat in Vietnam is going to use heroin, but the rat in the United States, same rat, isn't going to use heroin, but still has access to the drug? I mean, you can go, you can go get the drug um, and you know how to get it. And you've got friends that know how to get it. So why is it that they come here and they're not using the drug? Well, that brings the second rat study. So now they took the cage, they made it bigger. They put some toys in it for the rats to play with. Um, and now they put more than one rat in there. Now they put some friend rats and they put girl rats and they gave one side cocaine and the other side of the cage, they put water. They dropped the rats in there. They tasted both and the rats are like, well, I like playing with my friends. I don't want to be hanging out drinking Coke all day. I'm going to go play with my friends. I'm going to go have sex and I'm going to play on the Ferris wheel and I'm going to do other things. None of the rats died. And so what that tells you is even if you have exposure to the drug, if you don't have loneliness, you're not going to use the drug. You have to do something else. And so it's more than just simple exposure. Um, they did another study, not a third study. They took the rats and said, okay, I'm going to let the rats have water. I'm going to let them have sugar water or I'm going to let them have cocaine, one rat in a cage. Which one, What's that rat going to do? Well, the rat drank the water, drank the sugar water, drank the cocaine water and said, uh-uh, I want the sugar water more than I want the cocaine water. Screw the, screw the cocaine water. I want the sugar water. So the sugar um, they found for rats was actually more addictive. Now, the difference is, is that we don't consider sugar a classic addiction. It's more than just a, a substance. Um, it's both a pro it's a process addiction because it's it involves our concept of food. There's a nutritive component to it, so there's benefit to to that, um, and it's a process addiction. And as well, it's a chemical addiction, but not to the same degree. But it still causes probably more harm um, than than opiate addiction um, because right now. You know, last year we probably had a hundred and something thousand people die from fentanyl, synthetic fentanyl overdose. We probably had three times that die from diabetes, maybe five times that. Um, the the issue with processed food addiction controls two thirds of healthcare expenditure in the United States. So we have way more people dying from heart disease, the secondary things. It's just the thing. The difference is when you overdose on fentanyl, you die today. You die in five minutes. When you overdose on sugar. It'll kill you, but it'll kill you over time, and it might, might take three years, five years, 10 years, 15 years. And so there's not the same urgency associated with treatment. Um, but I can tell you that patients have the same dopaminergic response, and they have the same um, cueing reflexes, and they have the same desire to uh, use substance, uh, and they have the same craving. And they talk about the cravings every 14 minutes, 15 minutes, just like you do with uh, cigarettes with nicotine. So it's a process addiction. It's probably not going to kill you today because it's working on different receptors. Um, and, you know, it, it's a different concept slightly. It makes me really curious why the rats chose sugar over the cocaine, because would you say that cocaine does produce more of a, a dopamine, produces more dopamine in your brain than, than sugar? It does to an extent. Uh, but they've actually rated the amount of dopamine that's re reproduced, and actually it's very similar. Um, and I don't know if you, dopamine's the only you factor actually get, either. That's the thing. That's not the only thing. Right. But the thing is that um, cocaine itself is somewhat bitter. And so rats prefer the, the they prefer the, the sweetness of the sugar. And there's other factors as well. But they, there's something else that, that they're getting from it. Uh, and it could just be the flavor profile that they like better. Um, but they, they have looked at dopaminergic excursion with different compounds. And amphetamines are one of the highest dopamine um, releasers. Cocaine's high up there. Uh, sex is high up there. Um, you know, th there's, there's all kinds of different ways to, to get to that. But sugar is definitely high up there. Okay, I want to ask you 
some questions about addiction, but first I, I definitely want to touch back on the seed oil stuff. So what would be, so if someone was trying to cut that out of their diet, how would you suggest they do that? And what would be some good alternatives for frying oil or, you know, whatever? Yeah. So it, it, that's, that's actually one of the easiest things to eliminate. Um, seed oils are one of the easiest things to eliminate because there's nothing that you need in them and you're not going to miss them. See, the thing is people only change a habit if there's a reason to change a habit. If there's a substitute that gives them the same hedonic response, then that habit can change today. You only have a struggle on changing a habit if the hedonic response of the habit that you want to do because you want to do it because it may not necessarily be good for you is greater than the hedonic response of what you're trying to change to. And in this particular case, seed oils um, don't have a great separate hedonic response. They just happen to be what the, what, the, what the nutritional agencies and what the government and what the big agriculture companies want to push us towards. So how do you change? Well, you simply don't buy any more canola, mazola, margarine, um, and those kind of things. What oils do you use instead? Use natural saturated oil. You can use ghee, you can use butter, you can use olive oil. Be careful with olive oil because a good two-thirds of it is fake in the United States. They basically take vegetable oil, put some green uh, coloring into it, and, and give it to you as vegetable oil. A lot of the vegetable oil you see in restaurants. What about avocado oil? Avocado oil is perfect. Um, and that's, see, the, the, people like to confuse vegetable oil with, with real vegetable oil. Uh, they, the, the industry says, oh, that's a vegetable oil. No, that's a seed oil. And what a vegetable oil is, like olive oil and avocado oil, uh, duck fat, um, and oils like that. Those are all healthy. Ghee, butter, um, you know, th those are healthy oils to use. What's not healthy for you is industrial seed oil. So substitution is the first thing you do because you can get away with that. And then as you learn... If once you learn that concept that, hey, I'm I'm being a little bit deceived because I've always been told that butter is a bad thing for me and butter is actually a good thing. See, butter has other properties in it that we've ignored. It has uh, butyric acid, which is vitamin K2. Vitamin K2 sweeps the calcium out of our coronary arteries. It improves our coronary artery elasticity and removes the calcifications. It helps sweep them out. Um, a lot of these saturated oils that we get from animal products and naturally occurring uh, saturated oils carry a lot of other vitamins, and those are really important for us to consume. And so it, it's an easy replacement. Yeah, what are some other just general tips for a diet if you're trying to be healthy? Because it's a very controversial yeah, so, um, I actually, area. Um, it's not that controversial. I mean, the, the, those of us that are in the field, um, if, if you, if you, so let me give you something controversy that, that people always say. And, and I always wonder, like, do you, do you understand what you're saying? Um, breakfast is the best meal of the day. I'm sure you've heard that, right? Breakfast is the best meal of the day. Mm -hmm. Yep. Do you know where that came from? I do not. Do you know where the concept came from? No. That's uh, Kellogg's. Uh, and G, uh, General Mills. Um, and so John Harvey Kellogg uh, was the typesetter for the Seventh-day Adventists when he was very young. He became a um, psychiatrist when he was a little bit older, and he ran an uh, insane asylum on the northeast coast of the United States. And his issue was, you know, he, he'd been the typesetter for the Seventh-day Adventists. The Seventh-day Adventists came about because there was an um, anti-violence movement um, and they, they wanted to stop violence against women. And so they thought that men eating meat was causing them to become violent. What they ignored was that men eating meat, drinking alcohol, was probably the cause of the violence, not just them eating meat. And yeah, they were barbaric, but it was probably the alcohol triggering this underlying. Um, he becomes a psychiatrist up on the Northeast Coast, and he's dealing with all these patients, and he notices that they're very aggressive sexually. And he's like, you know, I, I could put him on a, a meat-free diet. Maybe that'll work. And as he's looking at it, he realized that if he fed them grains, they would get fat 
and they would drop their testosterone. And so he came up with a cereal. I think it's called Kellogg's. And it was designed to get men to quit masturbating. And that's the origin of Kellogg's. And the Seventh-day Adventists went on to own and operate almost all of the major cereal companies in the world. Uh, and they're very proud of it. And I, you know, they've done an amazing job. But the problem is that people don't realize that the best meal of the day that they think is the best meal of the day makes them hungry for the rest of the day. Because the thing is they get an insulin excursion from the carbohydrate and they end up jonesing uh, about two, three hours later and they end up eating from morning to sunset and they end up eating three meals plus five snacks, which is what the average American eats. Um, because every couple hours their sugar drops a little bit. And it's, it starts off with that carbohydrate load in the morning that you really don't need. Um, and so people get into these controversies and listen to something that's in the literature, or something that's in the public media and take it as gospel. And, and before they know it, they've hurt themselves. So um, some of the best places to get really good information is look at some of the, look at some of the um, low carb USA folks. There's a society, Society of Metabolic Health, um, and even the American Diabetes Association is starting to come around to this, that, you know, if, if you're diabetic, you probably need to get off your sugars. Um, and you can treat diabetes by getting rid of your sugars. You can successfully treat it without being on insulin by just getting rid of your sugars. I'm specifically talking about type 2 diabetes there. Um, and so it, people are coming around, and there's a whole replete source of information. Um, I have a website, reversediabetes.md, and also ideal.fit. Both of them have protocols on there. Both of them have free protocols on there. And it goes through how to, how to eat correctly, what to eat, what not to eat. Uh, and it goes through in detail. Okay. Yeah, I'll check those out and definitely throw them in the show notes as well. Um, sure. Let's see. So I did want to comment on the rat study you were talking about, particularly the one with the toys because I found that to be true yeah. in, in my life. You know, um, I, I was an addict for the first, you know, from, from age maybe 16 to 20, 24. And during that time, I remember when I would try to stop using, I was a heroin addict. When I would try to stop using, I just, I, I did not have any sort of intrinsic motivation. This, it was my life and nothing else sounded fun or exciting to me. But when I was finally able to like, put it down for long enough. I ended up doing some time in jail, getting out of jail and developing a motivation to actually do some things in life, like some cool things in life. Like I went back to school, got a computer science degree, um, and, uh, you know, started taking care of myself and, you know, built really strong friendships and social connections. And, and nowadays, like the thought doesn't even cross my mind where in the past, it was something that I thought about every day, never thought was something that would go away. And now it's something that does not cross my mind ever. And I just want to hear you talk about just addiction and recovery in general. And, and you know, some of the best, the best ways to develop that motivation to, to get off drugs. Yeah, so there, there's, there's algorithms that you should follow. Um, when you have addiction. And the first part of addiction, the first part, um, is to make sure you don't die between here and there. And so we know that you have a profound hedonic drive. And that hedonic drive is demanding. Your brain is hardwired for um, medications that you're getting from the outside. And the reason why is once you go down that road and you've become addicted and, you, and you've become socially isolated and, and you're using these medications, what happens is that we have these things, they're called, I'm talking specifically about heroin right now. We have these things called mu receptors, MU, and they're in your brain, nucleus accumbens, um, and, and in other places as well. You normally have something called endorphins. Endorphins are your intrinsic pain relievers. So if I bump into the table or if I get a cut or, you know, I have an injury, first I hurt 
and my brain lets me know I hurt because I release substance B and I go, oh, I, I just, I got blood on my leg and it hurts. I wouldn't know that I had blood on my leg, but for the fact that I hit something, but it's the pain signal that tells me, hey, you just injured yourself, fool. And so now I'm looking down going, well, I hurt. And now it really hurts bad. And eventually it's going to heal, but my pain is going to go away before it heals. I'm not going to still have pain under normal circumstances if I don't have anything else going on. And I've got this because my body's produced endorphins to occupy my mu receptors and I get pain relief. Okay. So the next, next element of this is if I've started to add external medications and I've added heroin or fentanyl or other, you know, legit, you know, licit medications like Tylenol 3 or oxycodone or hydrocodone. I've added these medications. They start to occupy the mu receptor and my body goes, Hey, something else is occupying this mu receptor. I need to stop producing endorphins. So your body stops producing endorphins and now you become dependent upon that external substance. And then you start jonesing every 15 to 30 minutes because now you got to have that substance that was naturally produced. So the first thing I need to do is to keep you from jonesing so that you're not going to die from withdrawal because you don't really die from opiate withdrawal, but you, you can, you just get really, really sick. Um, but I need to occupy enough so that you quit going out to the street or demanding medication from another source. Um, so we're going to keep something from hurting you. It's called harm reduction. And we're going to prevent that from causing you difficulty. And so we're going to use a medication like Suboxone or some clonidine or something to occupy that receptor partially till you build up some endorphin. So that's stage one. Uh, and so that's the harm reduction stage. The second stage uh, and that, that harm reduction stage, I can detox somebody off of a narcotic in four days, five days. But you got to maintain them on something while I figure this out. The next stage is to get you reintegrated into a community of people that you can connect to. And so that's the typical Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, social support group, XYZ. Um, it's to start developing other people that you can interact with that are having a similar problem. This becomes a problem later, but right now you, you need to have people that you can interact with. At the same time, you have to change your metabolism. The reason why you're in this mess is because you have severe neuroinflammation. Your brain is hungry for, for amino acids. You're probably missing tyrosine. You probably are not sleeping. You have a dysfunctional GI system. Um, and you, you probably have severe neuroinflammation and you're malnourished. So we start to change your diet and get healthy saturated fat back into you. We start to give you medications that will replete some of that and we, you've got the uh, connections. So now, now, we're, now we're kind of down that road. Meanwhile, we start to get you off of the external medications that we use to bridge you. And now we have to give you something else to look at. We have to change your personality a little bit. We have to say, look, you know, Jimmy's not, he's not a drug addict. He, that's not his personality. You no longer will identify <coughs> with that as a personality. Um, I'm not a smoker. And so what's the likelihood that I'm going to go into the convenience store and buy a pack of cigarettes? Probably zero. Why not? They're there. I go by Quick Trip all the time. Yeah, they're there, but I'm not a smoker. That's not my personality. I don't smoke. Why would I do that? Well, you have to get to that point where you change your personality and that's not within the paradigm of your personality. And so that's, that's the next, um, that's the next thing that you have to worry about. Um, so we kind of have to do that. Um, and then you have to maintain some degree of significant vigilance and that's the long-term aspect of it. Even though you've changed your personality, a lot of people will go back and you have to internalize this and maintain that personality. Um, and, and that's the long-term. Um, and then one of the ways that you internalize that is to have recognized where, what you went through and pull other people along. 
see, you're, you're now the mentor and the, the mentor grows as much as the mentee. You, you know, you're, you're the guy providing the mentorship. You're going to grow just as much as the person that you're trying to help. And so that, that kind of brings you full cycle. And, and, and now you help the other people. Uh, that, that becomes part of your mission. It can't be the only part of your mission, though. And here's the problem. If that becomes the only part of your mission, you're doing that if, if that's all you do. And I've seen this a million times. Um, then what happens is you're living vicariously through the other person's addiction. And I don't want you doing that. I want you to get beyond that. I want you to have that as a service model. But I also want you to get beyond the vicarious living of, oh, what'd you do last night? You know, oh, you were so screwed up. <laughs> you know, and, and so that's not, I got to get you past that vicarious living because that's not your personality anymore. You're there to help them. You you have to change your mental model to say, look, you know, I, I've been through this. I, I understand where you were. That's not me now, but I, I, I respect where you were. And we have to go from point A to point B. If you embed too much into that metal mo mental model, then you'll end up going back to it. And that's why there's a high recurrence rate, especially in people that work in this field that have a history of addiction. Um, and people all say, oh, you, you can't be a good addiction counselor unless you've been an addict. Well, that's not true. Um, you know, I, I have, I, I've owned restaurants and I have chefs that can't smell, but man, they make really good food and they can't taste. I've had, had one that just, he, he got an injury, he got a head injury, but he still knows what stuff tastes good and he knows how to put, the, put it together. Uh, it's just interesting. I mean, once you understand at a deep level the moving parts, you can really you can really help. Um, but you don't. I don't want you living vicariously through the the misfit adventures of somebody else. Yeah, I worked at a treatment center while I was going to school, and some of the best counselors there were were not in recovery. So I, I also mm -hmm. found that to be true. And it's hard to people to, it's hard for, for people that are in an addiction to look at somebody who says, well, no, I'm not an addict. I've never been an addict. Well, you don't understand. Well, look, just because I don't, I don't have my leg amputated doesn't mean I don't understand <laughs> how to mobilize you uh, because you've got a leg amputation. Um, exactly. You know, I, I'm, I'm a pretty damn good pain doctor, but I don't take any pain medicine. In fact, I don't take any medication except for maybe fish oil. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't understand how all the medications work and I don't know, understand how to do all the procedures. And so it's, you know, it's a defense mechanism in the person who, who, has the pro who has the disease and you're trying to help them. Um, and at the same time, you have to be very careful that you don't have somebody entrench. And you also don't want to substitute one addiction for another. That's what I frequently find. People come in and they have this hedonic substitution, and sometimes they'll uh, come in on one addiction, and before you know it, they're now addicted to nicotine, and they're addicted to food and sugar. Um, and so they substitute one addiction for another, and you have to avoid that. You have to prevent that from happening. Yeah, you talked about putting people on the medically-assisted stuff at, at the beginning and then at a certain point taking them off. How, about how long is that usually? How long is that period? It's kind of, it's individually based, but, you know, it can be as short as a few weeks. Um, it can be as long as a year or two. I mean, it depends on the individual. The people have more baggage than, you know, we, we as physicians recognize or we as providers recognize. You know, everybody has a trauma story. Everybody has something that is eating them alive and that it may still be eating them alive. And that's the issue. It may still be there. And so you have to be, um, you have to be understanding of that. And it may take longer than you expect. And there may be times when people go backwards for a bit. We're, we're biologic creatures. Um, it's not just like going from point A to point B in a straight line. Um, we wander around a lot and that's just the nature of biology. There is no straight lines. Um, it's general direction. And you know, you're gonna have good days, you're gonna have bad days. You're gonna have positive as negative, and you're you're being thrown around by the currents of society, by by all the air channels and all the rain and the storms and everything else, and all the other crazy people in the world, 
and the media and pandemics and financials and 15,000 other things. We're, we're very complex creatures and we're in a very complex environment. And so all of that has to be taken into account. So when you were talking about the process, you, you, you said, you know, they get involved with 12 step recovery at some point. And did I, did you say that that becomes a problem later on or did I misunderstand you? It does. It does. And what I mean by that is that some people make that their personality. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I think that 12 step recovery is an amazing, um, amazing concept. And I think it's perfect. And I think up front, it's amazing. But eventually, it can become baggage. And not everybody needs to go through all 12 steps. Not everybody needs all of that. Um, and so because they, there's such an entanglement, there's a sense of failure. If you go, well, I figured it out. I, I know what I need to do. And I or I've done this 12 steps before. And I and, and I'm okay, I, I don't need to come back because, you know, I don't need to come back. I figured it out, I changed my paradigm, it's not me. Um, and usually the response from your coaches and counselors are, you'll be back. No, you may not be back. If you've changed your paradigm, you change your paradigm. That's not you, I'm not a smoker, I don't smoke anymore. Why would I buy cigarettes? You know, or I'm not a heroin addict, that's not me. I've got more to do and I've redirected my drive into something else. And that's the thing. Redirection is the key and critical element. And I recommend you redirect into something that's a very beneficial habit that gives you dopamine release. And that's why I love entrepreneurship. I think that that's really important. And I encourage my patients to figure out what they can do to redirect their drive into something really, really important for them. And that's beneficial. How did, can't a drive turn into an addiction? How would you keep those two things separated? Like to keep something that's driving you from turning into something unhealthy or an addiction? It's only within the context. It's only unhealthy if um, it's not accepted by society. I mean, some people would say that, that I'm addicted to working hard and getting up at three o'clock in the morning and being hyper-motivated. And some people would say, oh, well, you know, he's just, um, he's just overdriven and he's losing his life to trying to be productive and you just need to relax more. Well, to me, my production is beneficial because I'm able to learn a bunch of stuff and help a bunch of people. Now, if, if instead I channel that into drinking till four o'clock every morning, then that's probably not beneficial and it's not helping society. So that's a differentiating standpoint. Is what you're doing beneficial to society and beneficial to you overall? And is it a long-term benefit versus a short-term? Most of our addictions are short-term good, long-term bad. And so they make us feel good right now, but they make us feel really bad later. And most of the things I'm talking about that we want to convert you to, you don't feel so good right now doing it. But long-term, it really benefits you. And that's how you know it's a good habit to go towards is it's usually something that benefits you later. One other thing I wanted to ask you about um, medically assisted treatment is how do you know when like a patient is taking it responsibly versus when they're taking it irresponsibly? It's behavior. It's you're, you're trying to um, you're trying to make a gestalt of their behavior and superimpose it upon what you're seeing in front of you. So you're, you're going to get a signaling from them of what their beliefs and what their mores are. And obviously you're going to do urine toxicology testing and saliva testing and all that other stuff. Um, but you, you can usually, people have a lot of tells. I mean, they, 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 they tell on themselves. They, they have subtlety that they're going to reveal what their behaviors are. You just, you know, it's, it's hard to hide it as a human being. Um, and so is somebody who's really good at observing these people um, can usually figure it out. And so that, that's, that's what we're trying to, that's, that's what I try to do. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah. So we're getting close to the end of the, the hour and I just wanted to give you an opportunity to tell everybody where to find you on social media. Yeah. So the easiest way, I mean, the easiest way to find me is probably either at, um, I'm on LinkedIn, obviously, and, and that's because I don't do a lot of social media myself. Um, we do have people that uh, put up 
stuff for me for social media um, that I write the articles and I have them load them up because I just don't simply... I think that that's a big addiction itself. Uh, social media is just a terrible, terrible addiction for some people. And I, I, I'm not somebody that loves that TikTok world and I'm not somebody that loves Facebook. But I also recognize that that's a, lot, a way that people gain information. So I want to provide the information there. Um, so usually it's through LinkedIn is if somebody wants to reach me. But um, I also have websites www.ideal.fit, www.reversediabetes.md, www.addictionology.center, and uh, www.painmd.tv. And also just look me up on YouTube. I mean, look up my name, Pada, P-A-D-D-A. And I, I don't have my own podcast per se or my own channel. Um, I usually go on other people's channels because I, I feel like they usually have a specific query that I can answer and assist with rather than um, rather than me designing a specific subject area. I can assist them with theirs. All right. Well, yeah, I, um, I really enjoyed our conversation. I will I'll definitely include all that stuff in the show notes. And you've given me a lot to think about and a lot to kind of look into as far as yeah. as far as the, the seed oil stuff. I've, I've been hearing so much about it lately. Um, and, and I'm, I'm glad that you're able to talk about that and among other other topics. So I've got some stuff written down, definitely do some digging around. But yeah, I appreciate you so much for taking time to sit down and talk. Absolutely. I appreciate it too. Thank you.